Hi, everyone, and welcome to Brewing the Tea, a podcast hosted by Zha Zha Liao and Tony Liu, where we sit down with Taiwanese and Taiwanese American entrepreneurs and leaders to tell their stories and inspire the next generation. On today's episode, we're so delighted to have Johnson Shea join us today. Johnson is the co-founder of Cardiogram, a consumer mobile app that allows consumers to use heart rate data from their wearables to predict and prevent heart conditions. Today, Cardiogram serves more than a million users who generate over a terabyte of data each month, making it one of the largest medical data sets in history. Originally a software engineer, Johnson was a tech lead at Google where he worked on Google Voice Assistant as well as machine learning and infrastructure on search, personalizations, and recommendations. Johnson holds a CS degree from the University of Waterloo and a master's in AI from Stanford. Today, we'll chat about Cardiogram's successful and unsuccessful growth hacks, their academic research partnerships with research institutions, what he's excited about in the quantified self space, and more. Johnson, thanks so much for coming on the show today. We're so delighted to have you. And just to kick it off, let's go over your background. Where were you born? Where did you grow up? And all that good stuff. Yeah, definitely. So I was born in Taipei. My family immigrated to Vancouver, Canada when I was nine years old. I have a brother uh, that's two years older than me. Um, we were very close as we were growing up. We would play video games together and play sports together. So that was, yeah, that was a lot of uh, fun during our formative years. I, I swam competitively for six years in my teens. So that was very formative for me, teaching me a lot about hard work, discipline, being prepared, and really just having a competitive mindset. Yeah, so that's a gist of growing up, my family, hobbies. In high school, I was very good at math and science. <laughs> I was quite nerdy. I remember one, one of our math teachers I used to work at NASA, and uh, a bunch of us would uh, hang out at his class uh, during lunch to learn about advanced physics, things like special relativity and quantum physics. Those were very fun times of just learning about all these new things that you don't typically get to learn in high school. And yeah, I also competed in things like math competitions. University of Waterloo hosts this nationwide math contest for high school students across Canada. And I think there are also some contestants around the world. And uh, yeah, I would typically be among the top 0.1% of contestants and things like that. Yeah, that, would, that kind of sums up growing up in, in high school. So you Great. moved to Taiwan when you were nine years old. Now I'm curious what that transition was like, because you'd already uh, obviously gone through schooling in Taiwan. And I moved to New Zealand from Taiwan when I was four months old. So it was almost like nothing. <laughs> but for you, you actually had a life in Taiwan. What was that? What was it like? Taiwan is very strict and academically inclined. <laughs> and I think the biggest transition was Part of it was my parents recognizing that and thought that there's got to be a better way for kids to grow up. So I think the biggest transition was when, I, when we moved to Vancouver, Canada, my parents put me in, into all these extracurricular uh, activities, like getting into swimming. We also just did, I also learned things like skating. And I think my parents put me in these kind of really weird and esoteric kind of classes in the community center, things like 
learning to juggle and learning like basically like a clown school type of thing. <laughs> so I think there's definitely that difference uh, there. I, I I miss Taiwan for just people are super nice there. The food is really good. All of my relatives are there. My grandparents were there. My cousins. So there was definitely a transition period where. I it 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 was very hard to just all of a sudden have a lot of those things, not be there anymore. And then you eventually went on to go to Waterloo for college, which I think the perception is that Waterloo is very great at producing a lot of Canada's like best new grad software engineers. Did you know going into college that you were going to study CS? And what was that culture like, Waterloo? Yeah, I think yes and no to some extent. So I was always pretty good at math and science, and I learned about like programming and kind of computers, programming later in high school, but just playing with computers at a pretty young age. And yeah, I think when I was ready to go to Waterloo or or, or go to a university, I I think computer science was definitely one one of the subjects that interests me. I also looked into more hardware oriented programs like electrical engineering. I also looked into things like aerospace engineering. University of Toronto had this kind of aer- aerospace engineering program and given that I was a little bit into physics <laughs> in in high school that was very very intriguing. And the thought of working on space shuttles and and things was a very intriguing thing for, for for those years for me, but but yeah, ultimately I chose computer science. I think back then this was in the early two thousands, and the internet was just starting to be a thing. Like around it was there was the there was the the, the boom and the bust of the dot com era. I I think it was. I I realized that I was definitely this is definitely something that's gonna stay. This is、uh, a new kind of transformational shift, and I I really thought that software was going to be a very dominant part of people's lives in in terms of transforming a lot of industries and things like that. Yeah, I I think it was a lot of it was definitely talking to、uh, people that's. Couple years ahead of me, I have a brother, and he also went into computer science. So that was definitely one kind of thing for me to understand what that was like, what he was studying. So that definitely helped. Great. And what was it like being at Waterloo? Was it a very intense CS culture, or what was it like there? Yeah, it was quite intense. <laughs> I think looking back, we had a very heavy course load. Yeah, we learned about everything, a lot of like kind of theory with like algorithms, programming language, operating systems, compilers, databases, all the typical computer science classes. So, it was definitely yeah a very great learning experience. And all of all of the people that were there, given that it was a really good school, it, it's a very good school in Canada, and I think renowned around the world for its computer science program. Everyone that was there was very ambitious. They were coming in from being at the top of their class in high school, so it was definitely a, a really great mix of people to learn from with so much. In, Density, 
of those type of people. Yeah, I, I met a lot of great friends during that time. We would do a lot of kind of projects together and just learn about different topics in in technology together. Kind of learning about the tech landscape together. So yeah, it was definitely a lot of really intense classwork. Every, every after every kind of semester is over, and you have a couple of days to just have a breather. It, I, I remember it was always all of a sudden you have all this time and you don't really know what to do with that time. So I, I definitely remember that feeling. The other thing about Waterloo is its co-op program, and I really cannot say enough good things、um, about it. Basically, the way it works is that you would go to school for four months, and then you get an internship for four months, and you rotate that for five years. And sometimes in between these、uh, transitions, it's basically just you, you have one weekend, and you go straight into your job, or you, you go straight back to school. Sometimes you may have one or two weeks off, but we don't really have that much. Time off in between every one of these semesters, that kind of format was really interesting because it allowed us to learn theory, learn some theory in class, or do some small or some sort of contrived projects in class. But then going into the workplace and actually do something that's really practical and learning how software engineering actually works in the industry, and that kind of going back and forth was really good in inspiring us. To figure out what type of topics interested us and helped us pick the right subjects or specializations that we want to learn in the coming semesters, and it was just a really great program. I thought to help us learn a lot. I think it's great to get real world experience. It's something I wish like my college did more. I'm very jealous that all the Canadians get the co-ops. So after working at Microsoft and Google as software engineer. You eventually found yourself founding Cardiogram. Talk us through what was the inspiration behind that, and what it was like to, I guess, take that leap of faith and start doing Cardiogram full time. So I worked in the industry for eight years before before deciding to leave. I did a short stint at Microsoft to do some research, but then the majority of that time was at Google. And it was definitely really a great place to to work at. I learned a lot while I was there, met a lot of great people. At a big company, inevitably things move a bit slower. There's a lot of stakeholders, and a lot of the things that you do become more incremental. And a big company sometimes they're afraid to be too bold or try a lot of things that are risky because. They do have reputation to uphold. To everybody in all of their users and customers expect things to just be perfect right from the get go. And at a startup world, that's not you're not held to as high of a standard. Not because it doesn't matter. It just because it's you're trying to do something new, and everybody is might be rooting for you and and things like that. I, I was really itching to try something else after having spent so much time at Google, and when I was assessing what I wanted to do, I figured that I wanted to be at the intersection of some new technology shift that's happening in the the macro kind of world, 
and then and then also doing something that's much more impactful. So in 2014 and 2015, wearables started coming out into the market, and that was very exciting because that was for the first time in in relatively long time. This is a new form factor that was out in the market, and that really got me thinking in terms of. What can this new form factor really do that differentiates from other things that's out there? And the thing that really became a light bulb was the the heart rate sensor and different type of sensors that you can have on on these wearable devices. It can track your health and your movements and all sorts of different things for the very first time that was not really possible before. And then the really the other the, and then the exciting thing about this is that this is really in the healthcare space, which really had a p- potential to have a lot of impact. So this is so that was kind of the genesis of kind of the what what got me really excited. And then and Brandon and I, so Brandon is my co-founder. We started working with and started doing a lot more research in, in into it. Start building an app and everything, just to play with the technology for quite a bit of time before we even formalized the company. So it was definitely a process of experimenting with the technology, get a sense of it, and also formulating what we think can or cannot be done based on some early experiments, and and that led us to, we believe, to have a lot of potential to really start a company. That's interesting. I'm, I'm curious. Obviously, going from engineer to founder is a big leap. Did you always, you know, have entrepreneurship in mind? Was it really your experience at Google that you described, you know, of not being able to make, you know, potentially a big enough change uh, that then drove you to start a company? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I I feel like in Silicon Valley, to some extent, a lot of people's dreams are. To start a company, <laughs> and so I've definitely had that in the back of my my mind for a very long time, and I, I I would read up on things from like Y Combinator. They produce a lot of great content, and follow things on TechCrunch or all of these news about kind of startups, and learning about the mindset of what it's like to be a founder, what it's like to. Try something completely new, and the ups and downs of trying to get to product market fit, and so all of those things, I understood that it's not just about the engineering, and that actually really excited me. I think yeah, some people, not that it's right or not that it's good or bad or right or wrong. It's for some people and certain personalities. Maybe that's maybe certain folks just want to stay very much in the in the engineering. But for me, I I really wanted to learn a lot more instead of spending the next ten years of my life becoming an even better engineer. I wanted to just broaden my skill sets and learn about what it's like to run a company. What does it take? All the things from hiring a team to finding product market fit to scaling a, a company when once you have that to things like PR. To in, in fundraising, all of those things. I think that really excited me because I I, I thought that I I could learn a lot more with this change. 
So yeah, so I, I, I was very, yeah, I, I was very excited about that. And ultimately, I, I, I made the jump. <laughs> Sometimes you can't plan everything ahead of time, but you have a sense of the things that you want to learn. And that was really the driving force. That's awesome. And it, it seems like you had done a lot of reading and research already about you know, what it would take to build a first of all, successful product and then also build a, you know, a company, which is in itself a, like a task, right? How, how did those expectations heading in match up with your actual experience now? And like what, what kind of metro expectations, what surprised you? Oh gosh, <laughs> I, I, think, I think things are definitely a lot harder <laughs> when, once you're in it. I, I think there's definitely a lot of kind of survival bias <laughs> when you're reading about it before diving in and things, a lot of people warn you that, that it's going to be hard and, and things like that. It's not until you really dive in that you understand just the amount of things you really got to ramp up really quickly and learn and just execute. And also just learning what to say no to, what, what to focus on, basically everything. So yeah, I, I would definitely say it's, yeah, de definitely very, yeah, very, not very different, but I think the intensity is much more than even though I knew that it was going to be <laughs> very intense, it was even more, more than what I expected. I think there are also things like, there are really a lot of great advice about the process. Things like the hiring process or getting to product market fit or getting your first customer and, and all of those things. I think it's one thing to learn about the process and then it's another thing to really do it and understand it. And sometimes even learning about the process and doing the right thing may not necessarily get you there just because there's a lot of different things involved, the market timing or, or just the, the product. There's a lot of tweaks and yeah, there's just a, a lot of things that's just because you're following what you've learned, there's just so many different external factors that you just need to really be adaptive. And then, and then I think the I think the last thing would be that, regardless of how much you've read online or learn before doing it, there's nothing like actually doing it and learn from doing. And a lot of it is learning about. There's multiple things, but one one thing is learning to whether certain advice or certain things that you read is even contextualized to what you're doing, and whether that can even be helpful. Something that worked really well for a different company, you can try to emulate it, but there may be elements that is subtly different for, for, for your own kind of product that you just need to be very aware that there are some of these subtle differences and so that you're not just blindly applying certain, certain advice and just hoping that it'll, it'll, it'll work. A lot of it is really being very kind of self-aware about your own situation and really learning from doing and just being adaptive. And it's really fine to make mistakes and you could just learn through that entire kind of process of build and iterate. And so what is Cardiogram and what is the ultimate vision behind Cardiogram? Yeah, so Cardiogram, at Cardiogram, we want to empower everyone to be experts in their own cardio cardiovascular health. So we are a platform for consumer wearables, 
regardless of whether you have an Apple Watch, Fitbit, Android device, or any one of these new devices that's coming out to the market, you can use our mobile platform to gain more insights into their health. We think that a lot of these sensor data is underutilized to some extent, and it's difficult for hardware manufacturers to build the best hardware and device, as well as getting very deep into the insights of heart, heart rate data and building a really great user experience around it. We're, we're really leading kind of the space of displaying heart rate data and other sensor data in, in the most user-friendly way so that users can get the best understanding of the details of their heart rate data. A lot of people just say that the, the app we have is just so much better than the default Apple Health app, better than what they, the level of detail that they can see with their Fitbit app and things like that. We also give users different tools to annotate their heart rate data, things like annotating and taking notes of when they have symptoms, how good or bad they're feeling just on a general basis, what they were doing at a certain point in time when their heart rate is going all over the place. And this is really so that they can learn, they can put these notes down so that they can recognize patterns for themselves. And also so that they can have a record to, to help them in their discussions with their doctors and to help doctors make better diagnoses, uh, assess treatment plans, and even being able to see things like efficacy of, of uh, drug like heart rhythm drugs or things like that. So that is what we are building and, and empowering the users to do, to really become experts in their own cardiovascular health. On top of a lot of the really great user experience and ways for them to annotate their data, we also have advanced analytics using machine learning. A lot of that is still in the research phase, but we think there's, there's a lot of potential for, for us to help people recognize certain things that, that may be wrong about their health, getting to different risk uh, factors and, and risk scores for different type of conditions. So that is, that is an, another part of, of the company that, that, we're working, that we're working on. And for that part, we've done a lot of research with UCSF, who is our clinical research partner, to use heart rate data from Apple Watch and other consumer wearables to detect medical conditions. So things like atrial fibrillation, sleep apnea, hypertension, and even things like diabetes, we can get some accuracy to, it's definitely not perfect accuracy, but there is some level of prediction that can help us detect whether a person may or may not be at risk for one of these conditions. Great. And you mentioned sleep apnea, hypertension, et cetera, just now. And it looks like during COVID, you guys have also launched this flu symptoms monitoring feature. What are some other conditions that you guys are looking to help track that are on the roadmap? Yeah, I think there's definitely a lot of potential to potentially detect things like like Parkinson's disease even. So using the Excel, accelerometer and you may be able to detect the, the gait movement and tremors and things like that. 
So Parkinson's uh, could be one thing. There are other things like women's health, fertility health. There are definitely heart rate changes during fertility cycles and during pregnancy. So these are some, some potential paths going forward. And we are also periodically getting inbound interest from different research institutions in just trying to see if there's any correlation between heart rate and all of these different conditions. Things uh, like women's health, there was one research uh, institution, uh, academic research institution that wanted to partner with us. There's potential for, with heart rate variability, there is some potential to detect more conditions, things like irritable bowel syndrome, even mental health. There's definitely some correlations with heart rate variability and mental health. So these are some of the things that obviously a lot more research needs to be done. And even if we can get to some accuracy level, there's also accuracy level for kind of an academic setting. There's also challenges to when we try to commercialize some of these things in terms of actually reducing medical spend or measurably improve uh, health outcomes. But yeah, but there's definitely potential for these type of devices to be able to to predict to some level of accuracy each of these medical conditions. And you mentioned research a little bit. It seems like it's been very important for cardiogram, especially as you guys build on new features to diagnose new conditions. Tell us more about these studies and the research groups that you've been working with. Yeah, so we've our primary research partner is the UCSF cardiology uh, department. So we've, we've ran the major kind of research study is detection of atrial fibrillation. And the way that we've set this up is when you're in atrial fibrillation, your heart is basically beating at random. So it's fibrillating. And people can go in and out of these kind of random episodes, these heart, rate, uh, heart rhythm episodes. And there is a possibility that you may get stuck in atrial fibrillation for a long period of time. And that's pretty bad when it's doing that because it could wear your heart down and it, it could uh, affect a, a lot of other things. So one of the procedures that they do at the hospital is called the cardioversion. And that basically, they basically shock you <laughs> and in, in essence reset your heart back to normal rhythm or what's called sinus, uh, sinus rhythm. So the study that so the way that we constructed the study was that for people that come into the hospital to do a cardioversion, we asked those people to be part of our study, clinical study, and we give them an Apple Watch or a different type of wearable to wear before their procedure and also after their procedure. And this way we get we get heart rate data on these wearable devices 
which is not medical devices like Apple Watch. So we get Apple Watch heart rate data for people who definitively are in atrial fibrillation and then also definitively are in normal sinus rhythm. And that way we are able to collect all, all of this data set for us to uh, train our machine learning algorithm. Um, so that's like the way that we set up that study. And, and we've collected tens and thousands of samples to allow us to train our machine learning uh, algorithm. The other, so that's one setup for our study with UCSF. The other setup with UCSF is to work with their mobile, their online and mobile study, heart study platform called Health eHeart. And the way that we set up that study is for people who are in cardiogram, we can refer them to join the Healthy Heart Study at UCSF. And also for people who are in Healthy Heart, we can get them to use cardiogram and give us their heart rate data using the Apple Watch or other type of wearables. And through a Healthy Heart, they have a lot of online surveys of asking them what type of conditions have they been diagnosed with? Are they a smoker? What do their grandparents, what, what kind of medical conditions do their grandparents have? And all sorts of, do, do they frequently drink alcohol? All sorts of different type of insights into their health. And as part of this collaboration, we can share data between Cardiogram and UCSF to use that data to train algorithms to use the Apple Watch heart rate data to predict if someone uh, is a smoker or to predict if any one of these heart rate conditions or any one of these medical conditions. So that's another setup that we have in terms of the research study with UCSF. And it was announced last year that you have a, a partnership with Oscar Health. It'd be really interesting to learn the story of how that came to be and, you know, and more generally just understand how that partnership works. Yeah, so that partnership, so Oscar Health is a health uh, insurance uh, company. And the premise is that we can use our ability to detect and detect the risk factors for some of these medical conditions to reduce the long-term kind of medical spend. So the idea is that if we can detect some of these conditions early and make sure conditions like uh, diabetes or atrial fibrillation early, then we then those people will not will be treated earlier and so will not have further medical complications. We can potentially reduce emergency room visits, and overall, the health insurance company like Oscar can reduce their their spend, their medical spend. The way that system works is after cardiogram detects uh, a condition. So one, well, maybe a step back a little bit. All of this is a little bit tricky because there are a lot of regulations within the uh, healthcare system and things like FDA re regulation and things like that. The way that we set this up is that we decided that we're not going to get FDA clearance, but we were going to send already other FDA regulated, FDA cleared devices to to patients to get the, the gold standard. So basically the way it works is that cardiogram will use our machine learning to detect or kind of risk stratify 
certain people that may be at high risk for diabetes or at atri for atrial fibrillation. And for each of these conditions, we, if they exceed a certain threshold, uh, which is a, a knob that we can tune, for people that exceed a threshold, we can send them a, for atrial fibrillation, for example, we can send them a, a mobile ECG for them to confirm whether or not they have atrial fibrillation. For diabetes, we can send them, for diabetes, we actually book a blood test for them at a, at a lab that's near them and so that they can go and get a blood draw and, and, and get a blood glucose reading. And so after, so basically the way it works is that we, our machine learning that pre predicts the early signal, we send them these devices that's FDA cleared. And then after that, if they are confirmed as, as having one of these conditions, then we, we get a payment from Oscar to, to for, for, so it's called a, an outcome-based model or value-based. So we only get paid if we, if the diagnosis, if the FDA cleared device actually gave a uh, confirmed uh, diagnosis. And once they are uh, confirmed, we get the payment and then we will help them talk to their doctors and, and refer them to downstream treatments so that, so that they can get healthier earlier. So for things like atrial fibrillation, they should talk to their, we will get them to talk to their doctor about, about this diagnosis and whether or not they should be on blood thinners to prevent their risk of strokes. And in certain cases, they may need ablations to prevent additional episodes of atrial fibrillation. For things like diabetes, the follow-up would be to talk to their doctor and, and or work with different kind of programs to improve their diet or improve their exercise routines to, to reduce their, their blood glucose levels and prevent downstream medical complications. What are some interesting user data trends that you've seen on Cardiogram that you could share with us? Yeah, user interactions. Yeah, a lot of people are just really interested about their heart rate, <laughs> which is the, the fun thing about heart rate monitoring is that it changes from minute to minute. And when you, are, when you got surprised or you're at a birthday party or someone gave you a gift or something like that, there's usually a noticeable change uh, in your heart rate. So that is a kind of a really fun thing to just watch out for. And we do have a lot of users who, yeah, just open their app <laughs> during one of these uh, times and we'll add an annotation. <laughs> Someone gave me a surprise or some really great thing happened. So I would say that's probably one of the most interesting things. We've done some articles about having your watch on for the duration of watching an episode of Game of Thrones and basically seeing which scenes within that episode got you most excited. <laughs> so that was very kind of fun thing to, to do. Some other interesting data are things like, I think there's a lot of myth that wearables are just for the worried well and for kind of the younger generation, for people who are into fitness but that's actually not true from our data set. We do see a lot of people over 60s in our user base because they're just really, to some extent, worried, but they just want some way to uh, have a lot more visibility into their health. 
And buying one of these consumer wearables is a very affordable way for them to just have a peace of mind, have something that they can track their health outside the doctor's office. We also see a lot of examples of maybe people our age that have aging parents or elderly parents buying Apple Watches as gifts to our aging parents. Yeah, so we do have、uh, a lot of users that's quite the elderly age group in our user base. We also have a lot of people just above 50, above 40s using our app. And just, yeah, they, they, a lot of people are just very seeking for solutions for, to get additional insights into, in, into their health. And rewinding just a little bit, back in the day, When this paradigm shift happened, Cardiogram was one of the first breakout products in this quantified self space. Were there any interesting growth hacks that you guys used in the early days to, to achieve this? So, we had a really great relationship with the, the Apple、uh, Developer Advocates team and Google's Developer Advocates team. And so, we, we were featured in the App Store and the Google Play Store. And so, that's been very helpful. It was mutually beneficial because for them, they want to advertise and, and promote that all of the, their Apple Watch or the Google devices are very interesting and there's a, an ecosystem of great apps to use with their device. So that was mutually beneficial for them and, and obviously very beneficial for us to drive a lot of adoption. So that was definitely one thing that helped a lot. We also have really great, I would say, things like content marketing. So, we will write blogs about just your heart rate, about different how the, the flu may affect your heart rate, how having a fever could raise your heart rate a lot. Things like heart rate recovery after an exercise is an indication of how healthy your heart, rate, heart is. The more quickly your heart rate can go back down to,、uh, normal, to your resting heart rate after an exercise, the better. So, things like that, I think generating a lot of great content is helpful. Also, that we have a very clinical angle. We work with UCSF on research、uh, studies, and that was very novel and new when we first started for a consumer device and a consumer app to be running a clinical trial with a, a medical research in- institution. So, that really got us a lot of, I, I think that really helped us with our branding. That this is not just another kind of fitness or wellness app. They are really focused in the real health aspects. Yeah, so I think these are a couple things. We definitely tried different kind of ways to make heart rate data kind of social. That had some mixed successes. So we definitely tried a lot of different growth hacks <laughs> that's out there. But I would say these couple of ones that I, I, I mentioned, like getting great partnerships and content marketing, has done the best for us. I mean, I'm curious if you're willing to share it, would be really interested to hear about one of the, you know, even if it's a failed social hack around heart rates, how did you try to get people excited about sharing their heart rates? Yeah, I, like, I think going back to some of these interesting kind of <coughs> insights, like people getting surprised with gifts or just some really great thing happened in their life, that is actually one kind of moment that they may want to share on social media or in some cases they may want to brag about something. 
And so we thought that maybe allowing people to have a kind of a sticker of their heart rate on like a social media post or like an Instagram story or something like that, we thought that would be very potentially very interesting for them to share and also exciting for the for the, the viewers, the audience to, to see that. That didn't end up working as well as we thought it it would. I still think that there's probably some version of that could work. It, it could be a combination of we just didn't have the UI to make it easy to do. Maybe we should look at TikTok and how they allow people to generate content in an easier way. And also just we, maybe we haven't experimented enough with how to just make it fun or silly or funny or something like that. I think there might be certain things that's just it, not necessarily that it was a bad idea, but it might be just about the design of it. That's still something that I, I still think about from time to time, whether we can make it work. But so far, that's one thing that has not quite worked as, as well as I, I, I thought it potentially could have. I guess the last question here, there's this new way of activity in a quantified self space today. A lot of startups are productizing these experiences and some of them being like, continuous glucose monitors or these smart bed or these sleep patches, et cetera. Just as another founder in the healthcare space, what are you excited to see from this new wave? Yeah, I think the very exciting thing is just having more sensors and the ability to do more passive monitoring. So with the Apple Watch Series 6 that just came out a couple of weeks ago, <clears throat> they finally added the blood oxygen uh, sensor or capability to it. And I think that's very significant. Granted, uh, there are other devices. I think Garmin has a version already. I think Withings or a couple other devices also already have blood oxygen. But I think just the proliferation of these type of sensors and, and higher accuracy would be very exciting to, to enable a lot more different type of monitoring. I think right now during COVID times, body temperature is one, one thing that I wish a lot more devices have. So I, I think having a, a, some sort of device that have passive body temperature sensing would be really great. I, I think obviously with some sort of way of passive blood glucose monitoring would be amazing. But I think that is still relatively hard to do in a way that's non, non-invasive and also high accuracy. But, but I think that would be exciting if and when that's possible. Um, I think definitely sleep is interesting. I think we spend eight hours uh, uh, plus or minus sleeping every day. So different things that, different devices that help people track their sleep cycles and figure out a better way to get higher quality sleep. I think that is definitely very important as well. So I think, yeah, I think generally just just very excited to, to see more of these sensors coming online into the market. And I think especially if we can get more and more of these devices to do non-invasive passive monitoring, I think that would unlock a lot of opportunities. I think that would be very hard to do for some of these kind of measurements, but, but I think that would be really cool to, to see how the, the devices market evolve over the next couple of years. I think that's all the questions we have. 
we have some fun questions at the very end. <laughs> so do you have a favorite tea? Yeah, I I think I just like the classic milk tea, the bubble milk tea. <laughs> Very Taiwanese. <laughs> nice. Do you have a favorite Taiwanese food? Ooh, I think luzhou fun. I guess it's a minced pork over rice. I think that's, yeah, that's always a classic for me. Nice. Yeah, good choice. <laughs> and uh, what's your favorite thing to do in Taiwan? Ooh, I would say going into the night markets is definitely one one thing that's very up there. Yeah, I think just yeah, just there's so much great food in Taiwan, and I only have so little stomach. <laughs> so it's uh, it, it's always fun to to see. Taiwan has a lot of food innovation. That's one thing that I've noticed. And every time I go back, there's just like new things coming out, and it's it's just very. Very exciting to to see all the creative things that they do there, and it's also just fun to walk through there with friends or with my cousins or relatives. It's like a great day, to great way to spend like an afternoon or night. Great. Well, this has been awesome, Johnson. Thanks so much for taking the time today. We're very excited to to publish this, and I think people really enjoy listening to. Uh, you talking about all things cardiogram? So yeah, thanks for for having us today. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks, guys.